<sighs> maps. Fucking maps. They are the heart of, they're the, the beating heart of like the drive yeah, to was make like psychedelics and MDMA legal. This was right. a Megan's maps trial clinical was trial. Maps one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe just to, uh, to jump back a little bit, there was a good uh, article on Sage Pub called The Early Use of MDMA, Ecstasy, and Psychotherapy, 1977 to 1985. And it's a pretty good academic article that actually does address like some of the susser sides of all this. But like it names, you know, the big personalities of the early groups that kind of got together in California and uh, and had realized, you know, the, the great therapeutic potential of uh, of MDMA and also LSD and psilocybin, et cetera. I'll start from the beginning in a sec, but uh, just to, you know, tie this together, MAPS, I think officially came out in uh, 1986, like right after ecstasy was scheduled. But that was pretty much the continuation of an earlier group called the Earth Metabolic Design Laboratories, which was formed in 1984. And the board of advisors, um, that was founded by Rick Doblin, who also founded MAPS. And this is a group that was heavily around Esalen. But the group of advisors included, among many other people, Richard Jensen. So Richard Jensen is actually been part of this like he's not just some guy they picked up along the way that happened to be a creepy like sexual assaulter and manipulator right like this guy is actually best friends and like deeply integrated with like the entire mdma milieu from the very beginning um so once i saw that i was like oh okay like this really does go you know back to i think even the podcast the the cover story podcast doesn't get too much I mean, it gets into certain uh, early influences, but this talks a lot about a guy we've kind of avoided also so far from really, because I think we, we had to give him like a real dive. But uh, at this point, maybe the most like consequential and respected and influential psychonaut of the 20th century, Alexander Shulgin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And because he is the, uh, he's been called the godfather of ecstasy. He didn't invent it, but he sort of rediscovered it in, um, I think, first in the 1960s, and then, you know, started creating all these other drugs. I mean, he is quite literally, I think, you know, Hamilton Morris's idol. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and his idol. And Hamilton is the last person. I think you get called him his idol, like, in those exact words. Like, it's not... Quite openly. And he was the last person to to film an interview with Shogun before he died. I think it was in 2013 He said, he is my idol, my hero, my son, my O2. I loved him from the first moment I read about him. And he wrote those famous books, High Call. Yeah, Yeah, I have known and loved and Tryptamines I have known and loved. Uh, And you know what? I also, I want to interject here because this this one hits close to home for me, literally, literally close to home because um, I grew up in the next town over from Alexander Shulgin in the East Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander Shulgin lived in Lafayette, California. And unbeknownst to me, I drove by his drug compound, I think every day of the week, like when I was going to high school. It's kind of up on this like weird hill with like a windy road that uh, is kind of like you, you'd never, you just miss it if you didn't, weren't like looking for it. In fact, even I have like a strange memory of going to like a day camp at the, uh, El, at Spring Hill Elementary School, which is like just down the bend from Sasha Shulgin's compound. 
And like my one memory of that was, you remember when they would build those volcanoes and you would like pour like baking soda in it? Yeah, And then yeah. it would like erupt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like so it was like chemistry kind of. It was like doing chemistry experiments. Oh, I, like, I remember being like five or six. Oh no, and, like, was it a drinking, gifted child drinking program? Drinking a Snapple. Were you in that? And like, and, yeah, it was like, what, it was what, like yeah. being groomed down the street from Sasha Shulgin's compound to like, uh, to, uh, it was, uh, uh, the next what, Hamilton what are they always? What is that thing they post about on X where it's like some uh, uh, gifted child program? that like no one like quite remembers like fully i don't remember but i don't remember the name of it i yeah. forget mm-hmm. i forget but you know i mean that wasn't really that was just like a day camp like summer thing for like little kids mm-hmm. but uh but mm-hmm. then but also not just that not just like the proximity of having like the godfather of you know psychedelia like living you know like 10 minutes away from me growing up but also my first psychedelic experience ever college I think I was like a senior in high school. I was mm. probably 17. And um, my friend and I bought like what we were told <laughs> were like uh, psilocybin pills that were like, you know, they were like ground up, you know, powder in like a, you know, gelatin capsule. And like, I think we had expected to like uh, try like shrooms, and then yeah, we met up with this. We met up with this Russian guy in the fucking Toys R Us parking lot in Pleasant Hill, and he That's gave us funny. these pills and was like, "I'm just adding a little color here," but like, uh-huh. you know, uh, and like he was like, "No, bro, like, you know, it's like, trust me, it's like, it's basically psilocybin. It's just in pill form, you know." And uh, we're like, "Okay," and uh-huh. so like we went to my friend's house and we just like chilled in the backyard and took these things. And, um, and that was my first time ever taking any psychedelic ever. And interestingly enough, it's like in a funny kind of way, I was like inadvertently psyoped by Sasha Shulgin because we did we found out later that that was not psilocybin. That was probably either 2CB or 2CI, mm. which are the analog drugs that Sasha Shulgin invented. Right. And like is he's very well known for those. And, you know, I mean, it was a I thought uh, you were going to say the Russian experience. guy who sold you them was Sasha Shulkin. Oh, uh, like I mean, in disguise, uh, that's a weird like synchronicity. With a mustache, but, like, um, no, because, yeah. no, I mean, this guy, like, he was a friend of a friend. And, like, <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was like that, Ru- he was like from Russia. So, like, he didn't grow yeah. up, like, he wasn't related to the Shulkins, I don't think. But, uh, but uh, you know, he was like an early 90s, um, you know, kind of dude. And, and later, I like, the first rave I ever went to, I just, like, bumped into him. It's like, of course, like, you're here. Anyway, but also, yeah, in high school, the the first MDMA, like, experience I had in high school, going to a rave in San Francisco, um, like, probably later that year, um, another drug that, you know, not invented by Sasha Shulgin, but, like, he is sort of singularly responsible for, like, popularizing it and, like, really kind of making it a thing and I don't know if he, I, I don't think he was like actually, you know, manufacturing it anymore at that point. But it's like, you know, how little I knew. And then, of course, you know, uh, we've referenced it a little bit before, but like the hyphy movement of like Mac Dre in the Bay Area. You think that's a total coincidence that, you know, this rap scene develops where it's all about promoting taking ecstasy in like this new context. And it just so happens that like, you know, the heart of ecstasy is like in the East Bay, like right there and all mm-hmm. the Esalen people and stuff. It just, it makes me like from my own personal subjective experience, very fascinated with Sasha Shogun and like the moves that he made in his lifetime and the kind of far reaching influence that he's had like to this day. And then to watch all this stuff get mainstream because, you know, 2005 was a very, that's probably 
the period I'm talking about here, 2004, 2005, very different vibes in terms of, you know, are psychedelics about Extremely to be legalized? Extremely different no. vibes. Extremely yeah. different vibes. It still felt by default counterculture to even do drugs. Absolutely. Like were, the idea like of like weed giving being a middle legalized. finger to George W. Bush. The idea of weed being legalized was like not really conceivable in, in 2005. Like it was, it was just starting when I was like in the end of high school, like dispensaries were just starting to open because they legalized it in the nineties. Part of the, this, but did they legalize kind of it like medical marijuana or did they, Oh, legal- it was medical. But like we talked about, it was like a wink, wink, like I have anxiety, like, you know, I have insomnia kind of thing. But like, it wasn't, it, it still was. I knew one kid in my class who like a football player who who was a little older and turned 18 and went and got his like recommendation and that everyone was like whoa like oh my god like you could buy weed legally and so it was like a, a curiosity but then just a couple yeah, years like after the that idea, like everybody like, started getting them like everybody had a card like by like 2008 you know so it like it developed rapidly 2008 uh, was very different from 2005 though 2005 it was no there there was it movement. seems almost um, crazy that like obama would be president you know like mm-hmm. It was very different. Oh, absolutely. It felt yeah. like we were going in a more cultural rightward turn again, like after the 90s, like when people were like reacting to Clinton Well, we, and stuff we did and for a while, but then, yeah. Then. We did, but then it kind of broke down and, uh, yeah, and, and the ecstasy even felt, yeah. I have to say like, you know, doing ecstasy was also, I didn't do it that much, but like, I, but I, I also knew people, by the way, I even made, um, the, the first documentary film I ever made in college, you remember this, never like really released or like showed at a film festival, kind of finished, but also unfinished. Uh-huh. It was like the first yeah. thing I oh, ever right. made. It was, I was studying, right. it was about I, like an I was studying documentary film. And this yeah. is also, I think, pertinent to bring up in, both in terms of my personal experience and in terms of this broader like conversation is um, I got the idea, this is probably around like late 2008, that, you know, I had sort of watched like, part-time because I was away at college but every time I would come back in like the summertime and I'd be in the Bay Area in like 2005, 6, 7 it was the peak years of like the hyphy movement and like fizz which was Mac Dre's slang term for ecstasy and it was I it's hard to describe how like particular to a region and also like culturally pervasive it was without any kind of big corporate thing backing it like ostensibly like this is like uh at this point an assassinated rapper's independent record label in sacramento is like pumping out all of this like local rap music that is talking about fizz and like Mm -hmm. being hyphy and like you know popping like fucking pink dolphins and stuff and like that was not a thing that was in rap culture before that it was not in kind of like normie like suburban culture you know before that which is like i grew up in the suburbs and like ecstasy was sort of like a rave like curiosity because of the rave culture but then there was that scary period where like mtv put out in the late 90s like i remember they did a true life like i'm a raver and they took this girl to a doctor and showed her like a brain scan they're like you have holes in your brain she's like oh my god i've ruined my life and then oprah interestingly oprah remember this did a whole presentation in like 2001 uh, about ecstasy that was very fear-mongering and mm-hmm. like it, it puts holes in your right, brain. I remember deadly, like, et cetera. Uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 Rick Doblin complaining about this. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, it's actually interesting. I always thought Oprah was kind of on the side of all the Esalen people, but like she was just like when she did all the satanic panic stuff, like there was a time when she would gesture more towards like kind of like conservative moral panic than later on in her career where she's like kind of like the lib queen now, you know, and would mm. probably, I bet she, I, I bet you she promotes psychedelics by the way. But that that was yeah. very interesting uh, to me, that era. And there also felt early on, because this was the peak of like the Iraq war, like going to shit and like, you know, everyone in the Bay Area, the dominant vibe in the Bay Area was like, fuck Bush, like fuck Bush and Cheney. They're so evil, they're corrupt. Like they're, they hate gay people. They want to bomb the Middle East. Like, you know, it was like, kind of peak era for libs really being like on the same page about well anyways uh so it almost felt like there was and i heard many people say things like this that there was a utopian aspect to everybody turning on with ecstasy because when you're on ecstasy all you feel is love and connection and empathy man like all you want to do is just like come yeah. together and like be with people and be happy and stuff and like also like have fun and party and be kind of crazy. But the early on, the positive aspect of it was really something that I think grabbed a lot of people. And because when you take it, that is what you feel, you know, like it gives you this rush of serotonin. And so in this kind of dark time of like war and like conservatism and evangelicals and stuff, it felt almost like a revolutionary act a little bit to rave or to pop fizz. And, and actually it was only intensified by like gangster rappers adopting it because in their own way, they're counterculture, right? And actually Mac mm -hmm. Dre modeled this where he was goofy ridiculous like kind of self-deprecating in a way like like really kind of an absurdist and like really funny and he would hang out with all these different groups of people like he'd go to like a death metal concert like just for fun like he'd hang out with like he'd go to college towns and hang out with all these white kids and you know like he'd go to raves like he was uh he almost like became this model of uh, this icon of like bringing everybody together with ecstasy mm -hmm. and like good vibes and music and whatever. And, um, and that, but when I started going back like later, like 2006, 2007, I remember 2007 is the summer when everyone started listening to Andre Nicotina. And if you go look him up, you can kind of tell the difference in the vibe and everyone started getting into cocaine. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, this is different. And like other drugs, like that people were snorting oxys, like people were doing coke and like, and, and kind of things like that. So that, it, it, it seemed to get, it like almost, it, it had taken a darker turn, like almost more like a, like an Altamont turn, you know, where like the good vibes were there at first. And then it starts to slide into something a little bit like darker. And then when I finally uh, did this doc, the, the centerpiece kind of the documentary was like, I was going to sort of interview like young people and how they'd been influenced by like the hyphy movement and like fizz culture. But like the backbone of it was, I wanted to interview a few drug dealers, like suburban drug dealers who have kind of been like radicalized by hyphy. And I did a couple, including like my hometown's, my, my hometown's most notorious drug dealer. I got 20 hours of video of him talking about like dealing drugs but what I didn't realize before I had showed up is that he had started dealing heroin right before and so mm -hmm. I thought I was gonna have like an interesting kind of profile of like this like th teenage fizz dealer like kind of like this nerdy white kid that became a drug kingpin it's kind of funny but then there was like this way darker thing of like 
started with ecstasy, then he got into coke, and now he's selling black tar heroin to all the kids in my town. And like, I was a pretty drug, like positive person, but that felt like a little bit of like an ethical line was, but this kid was also a, like kind of low key. He acted kind of like a hippie, like classic deadhead type of uh, acted like a hippie, but he actually was a hardcore Republican who supported Bush <laughs> and like believed in like total libertarian capitalism. And then it was a dog eat dog world. He told me this shit on film. Like it's a dog eat dog world. Like if I'm not going to sell it to him, somebody else's, you know? And like it, it actually kind of, it, I was fascinated by it, but it terrified me a little bit because this kid was, uh, this kid was sort of sliding into this weird, like suburban white kid, like gangster rapper fantasy, but <laughs> really like living in a dangerous way where he was going to like get other people hurt and probably get himself hurt or arrested and things like that. So that was the first actually inkling, I think, uh, that I ever got through like direct experience. And I also interviewed a few of my friends who got really into ecstasy during that era. And their like testimonies about it were not all like puppies and cuddle puddles and sunshine. Turns out it's possible to go a little too far with this. And, you know, I had a friend who I think did it not every day, but maybe every other day or so for like six months straight, mm -hmm. just on like a fizz bender. And like he was not he I think he he bounced back from it eventually, but like he talked about how that was like definitely not good for my fucking brain and was like I felt like a zombie like at the end of that like and then I realized like what the fuck are we all doing we're sitting around here and all we ever do is talk about how amazing this drug is and how like amazing we feel and how everyone's gonna be like best friends forever but is any of that even real or is it just this fucking drug we keep doing like he started to get very reflective about it and realized that oh like you know, fizz can be fun, but maybe it isn't what it is, you know, in the way that it's kind of been promoted. And I mean, and then like, you know, like it turned into Molly, it got more adopted in the mainstream in the 2010s and whatever. But then, you know, it's, it's boomeranged back around to like now these big institutions are making very big claims about how, you know, not harmful and amazing it is and all this other stuff. And um, I don't know. I don't know it, it, but but that that informs like I think there's there is new, like I've both I've I've been swept up in the joys of, you know, ooh a new substance is there it's gonna make the world better and I've also seen the darker side of it. Summer of two thousand and summer of two thousand and six at the end of it. A little bit after my 19th birthday in August, I fucking popped a pill with my friend Peter, and these were green PLs, and oh my fucking god, I thought my face was fucking melting. I felt so good. I have been a depressed fuck my whole life, and I have never been happier. What you want us to fuck on tails and clothes around here? I'm closing my pocket, but I'll make your fucking eyes pop out of your face. Fucking make you think that you're fucking flying through space, seeing yeah, fucking monkeys flying spaceships and shit all around the moon and shit. They ain't even see nothing but colors and stars and shit. That's what I'm talking about, but they would. Sleeping days, and that worked out to about like 3.5 with 
backstage I was on four pills and I was hanging out with all my best friends and we were all chilling in his apartment and we were all just doing, you know, talking to each other, talking about this shit and then like I went in the bathroom and looked at myself and I saw like my face sunken and like I just started looking and going and realizing, wait a minute, I've been talking about the same stupid meaningless bullshit, the same stupid fucking conversation over and over and over again for like months about how I love someone and it's like no I really don't love them it's just fucking mass serotonin dump in my brain of course I'm gonna love shit I've got like all my serotonin in my fucking brain running through my body how could I not love something it's fucking serotonin you know like and the west coast stop snitching getting this fucking thrown gel from nothing What's up with it, man? Yada, I'm saying, man. Yada, yada. You have the bay, man? Oh, I'm fucking gone. Let's try it off my paws, man. Off the deal, man. You see it. Yeah, I'm out of trade, man. From the ugly city, man. You see it. Yada. I sorted a molly and a half, and I'm drunk, and I had a bunch of pot. I don't know where this, uh, wherever this is gonna be. I don't know. I don't know if the wrong people are gonna hear this, but whoever you are, much love from Amir Amiri, from the Bay. East Bay, where are you? Union City. Union City? We ain't fucking with pills tonight, we fucking with E in jail, okay? That's what I'm fucking with, I'm getting drunk right now. Honestly, like, the way it really works and the way we end up rationalizing it at the end of the day more so is that these kids are perfectly happy with the cocaine that they're getting. There's never any complaints about the quality or the number price. Never anybody asking, like, you know, hey, like, is it possible to get an inch or like, you know, everyone is just happy with it and they want more and nobody's complaining. They feel they're getting a good deal, and we just know in the back of our heads that we're making more money off of it. But you gotta come up. If, and when it comes down to it, the way the way I also think about it even more so is that they're getting their allowance from their parents, and you know, they're getting this money from their parents, so we're essentially economically like we're in a <laughs> warfare with Morocco. Essentially, we're just funneling money out of there. A town that we hate funneling it out of the town. I like this analogy. Like not even like dealers that like stand lit in La Miranda and sell coke and like keep that money there, like like you know, go to the safe ways there and shit like that. Like that would all means that all what we back. We were we had we been, we joke about that, even though it's not though. We're basically like setting up like bringing drugs into a town. You know it makes things worse and like exacerbates problems like like we're taking money out of it to begin with and making it like a more shitty place if you will so like it is like a war you know and it's just like we were saying like wouldn't it be crazy if it was just like a slum in like so many years you know it's like i swear to god the game's gotten different like since like it, it, don't you think man like it's, it's never been like this thing before there's never been like Like, nobody's ever brought back coke by, like, coke by the key. Yeah, by the key, and just, like, fronted it out to people. Not, not even so much like that, but, like, I, I can see the, like, long-term goals, like, enough that I'll sacrifice a little bit of profit to, like, like you said, like, smoke people out, put people up, do something with people. 
because if it keeps people coming back, keeps people happy, and like keeps shit craving, it's like I can like if it keeps my game going even like another month, just because of like for whatever reason it's worth it, just to like keep people coming back and like eventually I know like supplies of money will get exhausted, which is why I'm like branching out, like not just cocaine, not just tar, not just pot, like diversifying my uh, portfolio, if you will, also like coming into like electronics or great, because they're small, they're actually legal, and people that don't have money left in Morocco will trade drugs, like 1.5 grams of tar costs me like 30 bucks, if that, if I buy it in bulk, it's almost nothing, and I can rip him. This kid's gonna give me a hundred dollar pair of Alpine speakers plus an iPod for something that cost me like 20 bucks, and I can turn and sell an iPod plus the speakers, like, easy, easy, and it's not illegal. It's not like weed, you know? Guy's gonna give me a PSP for like a gram and a half of coke, and like I said, if I cut it down, little bit more maybe than I would normally since I'm trading it, um, I can give it to him at about like $40 cost to myself, and there's a guy here who already like pre-ordered it for three-eighths of weed. Like that's a, that's a tight deal, isn't it? So just by transporting something. Into like, if you did it right, you flip those three-eighths into like 200 bucks. Mm-hmm. It's just, I import for access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.